Hey, welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it out. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. Good morning, Life Church. Come on, good morning, Life Church. It is so good to be here with my good friend, Sean and Sonny. Thank you. Thank you so much for allowing us to come and be here and to speak into this series. Uh, I will tell you, when Sean came to our church in Houston many years ago, uh, one of the favorite all-time speakers at the worship center was Sean. You're blessed to have such incredible leaders, incredible pastors. Would you give it up for Pastor Sean and Sonny? Thank you. Thank you for leading this church so well. Uh, I want to ask you, first of all, in order for us to all get out of here and say we had a good time, uh, lower your expectations for what you're expecting today. If you just lower your expectations, then we'll be okay. Uh, As I said in the earlier service, I'm always surprised and amazed that God would use me to be able to speak uh, to help people find spiritual guidance because out of this mouth has come some of the most stupid things. Uh, Does anybody else speak before you think? It's just like you see those words going out. It's like, I wish I could get those back. Uh, They just, they, but so I may make some mistakes today, but uh, just a couple of months ago, Starla and I, my wife and I, I'll introduce her in just a second. We were uh, doing a marriage conference down in uh, the Southern part of Houston. And, uh, and this guy walked up to me and says, Hey, do you remember me? And I looked at him. I said, Jason, been like 20 years since I'd seen him. He was a kid in my church back at the worship center. Jason? He says, no, Jeremy. I went, pretty sure it's Jason. He said, no. I said, why do I think it's Jason? He said, because that's what you've called me all my life. Prayed for people by the wrong names. We were in a hospital once and this lady came walking. We were in the lobby waiting with a family whose kid was having surgery. It was tense. It was heavy. Everybody was afraid. And this lady came walking in a hospital gown, you know, walking like this. She starts to sit down next to me. And I thought, I know that look. I've got four kids. I got, I know that look. And so I just thought I'd bring a little levity to the moment. And I said, now listen, don't you go and have that baby right here. She glared at me and said, I had that baby three days ago. Oh, yeah, want to get away? Yeah, I turn around and my wife had already walked out and just left me there. So you're on your own with this. That, that's kind of the, the pattern. So lower your expectations today, all right? Just lower your expectations. I want to take a moment and introduce my family uh, because you'll see this. And when we get to the part in the service, which you know there's going to be a fall somewhere, right? It's coming. It's part of this series. You know, we're going to talk about the bad before we can talk about the good, but I want to show you the good uh, before I talk about how we got there. This is my beautiful family. My wife, we've been married uh, for 30 wonderful years, uh, 39 years total, but 30 of them were wonderful. Uh, My son and his wife and uh, my first son, his wife, three kids on the right. My second son right there to my left, his wife and three girls. My oldest daughter and her husband, three kids on the left. 
my youngest daughter and her husband right there to my right. And uh, they have a baby now. So we have four kids all married and 10 grandchildren. Let's go. <sighs> 10 grandchildren. That's right. They call me pops. Uh, but that's my family. And when you hear the story, you're going to realize what a miracle this is. This is just last year, uh, but this is a miracle. But let me take you to the Word of God, and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 37. If you have your phones or you can follow along, the scriptures will be on the screen. I'll just read a couple of verses here as we get into what I want to call this message today, Dream Again. Anybody ever had a dream that just gone, destroyed, crumbled? You feel like there's no hope, no chance, just you had a dream, but it just slipped through your grasp. I want to challenge you to dream again. I want to challenge you to pick it up one more time, to not give up on whatever that dream was, to dream again. And we're going to go to a guy that was known as a dreamer in Genesis 37, verse number five says, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Has anybody ever shared a dream with somebody, something you wanted to do, aspirations, vision, some plan that you had to change the world and people just hated you because of it? Yeah, when you have a big dream, people don't like that because it makes them feel small about themselves when they don't dream quite as big as you do. So it's, it's, it's natural for some people to really hate you and not like you because you have a big dream, a dream for a business, a dream for your church, a dream for uh, your family, a dream for your kids. Some people aren't going to like you. And we know Joseph had this dream, his first dream. He saw these bundles of sheaves of grain bowing down to him. And he told his brothers, Hey, I had this dream. Guess what guys and y'all were all bowing down before me. You know, no big brother, uh, would, would allow your little brother to talk to you like that. You probably beat him up. Well, they hated him for it. But then it says in verse number nine, he had another dream or one version says he dreamed again. Yeah. He dreamed again. The second dream was even bigger than the first dream. He saw the sun, moon, the stars all bowing down to him. Of course, that brought his mother and father into it. And his dad heard this dream and his dad had a little problem with this, but didn't say anything. Sometimes even the people that are closest to you will have a problem with your dream because they can't see what you see. They can't see what's inside of you. But I want to challenge you to dream again and even look at verse 19. It says, then, uh, as he was going to where, to where his brothers were, the brothers saw him and they called him. Here comes that dreamer, sarcastically, just putting him down. You're going to have people that are going to put you down for your dream. That's okay. That's all right. Let them talk. Let them, let them cut you down. Let them say whatever they want. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. And verse 20 says, come now, let's kill him. That escalated real quick, didn't it? Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So four different passages here and each one, the common thread in each one is Joseph's a dreamer. Yeah. He's got dreams that have caused him some problems, but he's hanging on those dreams. He's dreaming again. His brothers are going to come against him and see what comes of his dreams. Now I'm one of three boys. I kind of get this rivalry that Joseph has with his brothers. I have a brother that's just older than me and a brother that's just younger. My older brother's just two years older than me. My younger brother is just 14 months younger. We were all in school together at the same time, all in high school at the same time. Uh, we, were, we were typical boys. We loved each other and we hated each other. We would uh, fight each other and then we'd turn around and fight the guys who were fighting our brothers. That's just <laughs> the way it was. Uh, but we were preacher's kids, raised in a preacher's home. And 
course, being the middle child, any other middle children here? Middle child? Got a few. You'll feel me. You know, the middle child syndrome, you know, where the, the firstborn is always the favorite. And then I came along and I was only had 14 months of fame until the baby comes along. So my whole life was sandwiched in between the favorite firstborn and the baby who got everything. Uh, y'all aren't going with my sympathy right now. You're not, you're not feeling my pain, but, uh, that was kind of my life. We, we spent a lot of our time at the church. My mom worked a full-time job. So after school, my dad would pick us up and would bring us to the church and we'd hang out at the church until he got off work and we'd go home. Being at the church, what we usually do is we always try to find something to eat because boys were always hungry after school. Go to the church kitchen, try to find something. Hopefully somebody left some sandwiches, you know, uh, left over somewhere. But usually all we found were stale communion wafers and sour grape juice. That's what we found. So we ate a lot of stale communion wafers and sour grape juice. We poured them in those little communion cups and throw them back like we were taking shots of whiskey. Pretend we were cowboys at the church kitchen. It's amazing. God didn't strike us dead, but that's, that's what we did. Uh, I had a little struggle trying to serve the Lord in, uh, in high school and junior high and high school and didn't do so well, but at 16 years of age, I had this incredible experience where I'm standing on a ladder, I'm painting my grandparents' house and my brother had just come back from some camp or something and he was just on fire for God. And he was playing, this is gonna be, he was playing an eight track tape. Where, if you're under 20, raise your hand. Have you ever even heard of an eight track? Yeah, you saw it on eBay somewhere online, but an eight track tape and he was playing a song about Dallas home. You know, anybody here know Dallas home? Yeah, three, okay, yeah. Well, he was a, contemporary Christian artist way back in the day. He was singing and it was a live album and he was singing in, uh, in the middle of this song, the words were come unto Jesus and give him your life today. He just stops in the middle of the song. It's a live recording. And he says, if you're listening to this right now and you need to give your life to Jesus, wow. just give yourself to him right now while we sing this song. And something just spoke to me. And I realized right there at that moment, God was calling me, get my act together and follow Jesus. And I said, okay, Lord, I'll give you my life. Here I am. And I remember that moment was life-changing for me. I climbed up that ladder as lost as I could be, made a decision right there. I mean, there was no church. There was no altar. There was no preacher. There was nothing. I just said, okay, I'm in. And I sold out and I gave my life to the Lord. Man, I spent my senior year just, pre I mean, preaching to my friends. I'd go out on uh, the patio, smoking patio and talk to all the guys. And I was, I was, I was an evangelist in high school. I won about 25 of my classmates to the Lord during lunch, during my senior year. And uh, this is, it was, it was what Jesus had done in me. But then at 17 years of age is when I knew I got called into the ministry. And there was this moment, I won't bore you with the details, but I knew I was called to do this for the rest of my life. 18 years of age, I, by that time I had already, I was, uh, got out of high school a little bit early, so I'd already started college when I was 18 years old. And I was in Bible school. 18 years of age, I had a dream. And I had a dream of pastoring a church of 2,000 people, multicultural congregation 
in a metropolitan city. Now, I'd grown up in a little town of about 15,000 people in a church of 200 white people my whole life. That's it. It's all I'd ever seen. It's all I'd ever known. So to have this dream, I don't even know where it came from. I'd never been in a church bigger than, I don't know, three or 400 people. So I don't know where it came from other than God. So I had this dream. So I'm at Bible school. I'm studying, preparing, have this dream at 19 years of age, which is the youngest you could apply for credentials with the assemblies of God. I said, I'm in, I'm going, I'm applying. I want my credentials to preach that gospel. So I go before this credential committee and I walk in and there's like six guys there and they're all, it's looked like they're, it's looked like they're doing their best to try to intimidate you and they won't smile at you and just stare at you. And, and they asked me this question. Son, how do you know you're called into the ministry? And I started struggling because I didn't really know how to articulate that because there was no audible voice. There was no writing on the wall. There was nothing in the sky that said you're called into the ministry. And I was really struggling. And in fact, I was thinking, man, I can't even answer this first question. What, what am I doing here? And I was struggling. There was a guy there on that committee that saw me struggling. And he said, let me ask you another question, Kendall. What do you feel like you're called to do? I said, oh, that's easy. I'm called to pastor a church of 2,000 people in a metropolitan city, multicultural congregation. Well, you know, I kind of expected a little bit of support. I expected somebody <laughs> to high five me, you know, you know, chest bump, you know, way to go. You can do it. Go for it. But no, there was nothing. There was doubt and unbelief in that room. Nobody appreciated my dream. And one man could see my discouragement and he reached across the table and he grabbed me by the arm and he said, go for it, Kendall. You can do it. I believe in you. You can do it. I don't remember any of those other men that were in that room today, except that one man who said, I believe in you. You can do it. Go for it. You can do it. So we planted in 1989, we planted the worship center, the church that Pastor Sean spoke at and spoke about. And God blessed that church. God blessed what we were doing. We built the first assembly, got a 2,000 seat auditorium in Houston. It was, it reminds me a lot of Life Church. I mean, it was happening. We had multiple campuses, multiple churches that we had started out of that, driving back and forth across town from the north to the south. God had blessed it. In fact, I even brought that man, Dr. Paul Savelle who reached across the table and said, I believe in you, you can do it. I brought him at the dedication of our new sanctuary. And I gave him this plaque that said, because of you, the dream came true. So good. It was just, it was, God was all in this. God was faithful and I was not. I had allowed the success of what God was doing in our life and in our ministry and our family to go to this head. And I began to think that everything that was happening was because of me. I became very arrogant, very selfish, very prideful. On the outside, I still tried to pretend, be this humble guy, but on the inside, I was filled with pride. And even in spite of everything that God was doing, I was just, I was growing a little more distant. Starla and I, we're, we're so completely different. I mean, I'm a black coffee guy. She's in almond milk, cappuccino with cinnamon and honey. And, you know, just, she's just, that's, that's just her. We're just different. 
And early on, we had our first son when we were, uh, he was born one week before our one year anniversary. So she immediately starts taking care of babies. I'm taking care of the church. She's focused on family. I'm focused on ministry. We're on two different tracks, not two bad tracks, just two different tracks. And we're just kind of coexisting alongside each other. And, and I honestly, to my fault, I am more interested in success in the ministry than I am success in my marriage. And so we're just coexisting, doing life. I mean, it's not horrible, but it's not right. But the, the more success we got, the the more prideful I got, the angrier I got, the more short-tempered I got, the more frustrated I got. I mean, I got ticked off at all kinds of stuff. If mics didn't work and lights didn't work and, you know, things weren't perfect, I just, I had this, I was a punk. I was a punk. And I fell. And I fell hard. I broke the vows that I made to my wife. I broke the vows that I made to my kids, my church my God. And I was unfaithful to my wife. This was 18 years ago. And it's still the most painful thing to ever talk about. I hate it. I regret it. But I stood in front of my church. I resigned my church. I admitted my sin. And I committed to get my heart right with God to try to win the heart of my wife back, try to win the heart of my children back. And if God saw fit to allow me to do ministry again, then maybe he would. We started down this two-year pastoral restoration program that because we're exceptional people, we completed in five years, just so you know. For five years, Starla wouldn't wear a ring. For five years, she wouldn't say, I love you back. For five years, she wouldn't commit to stay in this marriage. But every day that she was still there when I woke up in the morning was a win. We hurt. We were broken. But somewhere along the way, we started to dream again. We got to a point to where things weren't so dark and things weren't so horrible. In fact, I'll tell you, it got so bad that when I first, I mean, I, I was, when it was found out that I was having an affair, I was so ashamed. I was so defeated. I wanted to take my life because I thought my wife didn't deserve to have to forgive me. And so still in a twisted way, I was still selfish and self-centered. And I thought, I, I don't want my kids to have to look at me in shame. And I, I drove, I got in my car. I didn't tell this in the first service. I got in my car with my gun and I was going to take my life. And I drove and I ended up driving back to the same house that I stood on when I gave my life to Jesus, back to my grandparents' old farm. It was about an hour and a half away and I was just driving, trying to figure out where am I going to go to, to end it? Where am I going to go to put this thing to rest? Where, where am I going? And I ended up back at that house and I got back to that same place where I'd given my life to Jesus at 16 years of age. And I started hearing those words again, come, on. come unto Jesus, give him your life today. And I remember telling God, kind of arguing with him saying, listen, when I was 16, I had something to give you. I have my whole life in front of me. I had everything to give you, but I don't have anything to give you now. I got nothing. 
And what in the world would you want with this failure of a man, this failure of a husband, this failure of a preacher? What can you do with this? And he says, you just give me your life and I'll take care of the rest. So good. And I remember in that moment, I said, if, if you want this, you can have it. Because I don't and I know nobody else does. But I made another commitment at that same place that I did when I was 16. I said, okay, you can have me. And I started this process of rebuilding and being restored and being healed. God started healing me and started healing my wife and I and started putting us back together till our family and our children, they went through many struggles during this time. But around 2007, we started dreaming again. And one night while we were just having a family night and we were just singing and praying, and it's not like we really did all this church style devotions every night, but we just were there and it was just a special night. And I asked the guys, I said, hey, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do now? We were kind of breathing at this point. And people started talking about what they wanted to do. And, we, and long story short, our kids said, mom and dad, we think we ought to plant a church again as a family. And I said, no, that's a bad idea. We don't want to know. Nobody wants to hear from me. Nobody wants a pastor who's had a failure. Nobody wants that. I said, that, that wouldn't work. What else? What else can we do? What's plan B? But we kept on, and they just kept pushing and said, no, as a family, let's do it. So as a family, we started a church in Dallas. We've moved to Dallas to go through our restoration. And in North Dallas, we planted Freedom Church in 2007. That was 15 years ago. Our son was my youth pastor. Our other son was our worship leader. Our kids were, our other girls worked in the nursery. We just kind of as a family, start doing ministry together. And I was content. I really was. I was just content staying under the radar and just being a part of helping people because many times since we had moved to Dallas, people said, what do you, well, you know, tell us your story. Well, you know, I'm pastoring a church here in Dallas and we meet in a YMCA, set up, tear down. Really? What'd you do before that? Well, I pastored in Houston. Why'd you leave Houston? <sighs> Usually startled would kick me and say, you tell them, you got us into this. You tell them. <laughs> All right. All right. So I tell them the story and so many times, whether it was over coffee or lunch or in my neighborhood, somebody, what's your story? We tell them the story and we just were open and honest. I told them exactly what I just told you. I can't tell you how many times people just start crying. Say, I guess that's why God's connected us because we're going through the same thing. And we knew that that's who God had put us in Dallas to be able to minister to just some broken people people who needed a little bit of hope, people who needed to believe that God could heal their life and heal their marriage and heal them the way he had healed us. Only problem is God had another plan. Because when we're committing just to be faithful, just to help a few, God starts doing his work. In 2007, we planted that church. It starts growing and God starts blessing it. Today, on our campus, in Dallas, there will be 13 different services. I'm sorry, 11 different services and eight different language services. There will be three English services, two Spanish, one Brazilian, one Korean, one Bulgarian, one Guatemalan, one Romanian, one Jewish Messianic, all on this campus. Over 2,500 people will be there today so worshiping good. together. So A good. multicultural congregation in a metropolitan city. Yeah. 
of over 2,000 people. And listen, the only reason I even share any of those numbers is not to brag on me, but to brag on God. It's only God that it happened. It's only God that has done it. It has to be God. I told Sonny and I told Sean that many times when people come to the church, say, hey, we want to be a part of your church. I'll give them our book and that tells our story. I said, you better read this first before you decide to join this because you don't know what you're getting into. And so many people come back and say, this is the kind of church I want to be a part of. My next door neighbor, when I first met him, I told him my story. He said, what are you doing in Dallas? I told him my story and I thought this will be the last conversation I ever have with him. And he said, where are you meeting? After I told him what I'd done, told him our brokenness and God healed us and And he says, where were you meeting? I said, we're meeting in a YMCA down here in the gym. He said, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. He's been with me for 12 years. He's probably my third largest giver in the church. And I only say that to say that when I'm open and I'm transparent and I'm just obedient, that God brings people that he wants to be a part of the ministry that he's called us to do. And if I'm not open and I'm not obedient, I'm not, not, not transparent, I'll miss those opportunities. That's right. So we just decided in the very beginning, in fact, last Easter, biggest day of the year, we had like 6,000 people last Easter. I told this story that I just told you today on Easter Sunday, (laughs) just so everybody knows I'm messed up. (laughs) I'm still not perfect. I'm faithful to my wife, but I'm still not perfect. But God uses imperfect people. He takes people who have limps. He takes people who has brokenness. He takes people who have messed up. And if they will surrender themselves and humble themselves before God, God can take them and use them to do greater things they could ever imagine. That's what our story is all about. Let me just give you four quick takeaways as I wrap this up. Number one, here's the first takeaway. There's a dream inside of you. Do you realize there's a dream inside of you? What does that mean? There's a purpose inside of you. There's a reason you're on this earth. There's a reason God has placed you here. You're not here just to take up space. You're not here just to put in your years at work and retire and, and just, you know, sit in the sunset for the rest of you. No, you have breath in your lungs. I mean, God has something for you to do. There's a dream that's inside of you. When you discover your dream, you'll discover your destiny. But the second takeaway is this is that you've got to pay attention to the positive voices that are in your life. Because just like Joseph, whenever he shared his dream, the negative voices came out. The haters came out. When I shared my dream, the haters came out. And it's probably going to happen to you that when you share your dream or you start telling others about what you think God could do through your life, there are going to be some haters in your life as well. Ignore those people and pay attention to the positive voices that are in your life. You need the Paul Savelles that'll lean across the table and say, hey, I believe in you. You can do this and you will remember them. You won't remember the negative people, but you're in a community of faith here at life church where you have the privilege of having people speak life into your dreams, who people that will pray with you and speak life into your damaged goods and will allow you to dream again. Stay in this community of faith. Stay here where life is given. But then the third thing you need to know is that there will be storms. You start embracing your dream. You start dreaming again. Yeah, there are going to be some storms. I'm not telling you that life is going to be easy. Life will be difficult. Life will be challenging. 
There will be storms. Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He does not want you to fulfill your purpose. He does not want you to live in your dream. He doesn't want you to be in the center of God's will. So he's going to do everything he can to take you out. And he'll send people to try to take you out. He'll send people you thought were your friends to try to take you out. You're going to have storms. You're going to have difficulties. But that's no reason to quit because the fourth takeaway is this. You can rise above your storms. Yeah. You can rise above your storms. You can have the spirit of an eagle that uses the current of those storms, the current of that wind to rise above and get lift off. You got to realize that there is a spirit of an eagle inside each and every one of us. Yes. Yes. Storms will come. Challenges will come. Haters will come. But you can rise above that and use that force to be able to get lift off. In the darkest night of my life, the darkest moment of my life, when I didn't know if I wanted to live or not, when I didn't know that there was a hope and a future, I'm sitting on the back porch of my home. It's dark, the sun hasn't even come up yet. I'm drinking coffee and just kind of crying to the Lord. I was having a little pity party. It wasn't an awesome, powerful prayer meeting. It was a pity party. I felt so sorry for myself. I was so alone. Truth is, the only person that would talk to in my my home at that time was our dog. (laughs) Thank God for dogs. They love you even though you've messed up. They'll still come up. So I had a dog as a friend. That's about it. I'm sitting there on the back porch just wondering if this was going to be my life. Is this it? Is this the best it's going to get? Has my screw up set this in motion that this is the rest of my life? I said, Lord, is it ever going to get better? I mean, is the sun going to ever rise? Is, is it going to be dark like this? And I felt the Lord speak to me, not in an audible voice, but I just felt him speak into my heart. He said, the sun will rise over this dark night in your life. Yeah. And I remember sitting there just kind of contemplating that, thinking on that. The sun will rise over this dark night in your life. And while I sat there, the sun began to rise. I said, okay. The sun has never failed to rise. Not a day that I've lived on this earth. The sun has come up every single day. I felt God saying, hey, the sun's going to come up over this dark night in your life too. So every day since that day, 18 years ago, every time the sun comes up, I'm reminded that the sun has risen over this dark night of my life. It may suck right now. It may not be perfect right now. Things may not be the way you want them to be right now. Your marriage may not be perfect. Your kids may not be perfect. Your job may not be perfect. Your health may not be perfect. But I'm telling you here today, the sun will rise over this dark night in your life. It's not always going to be like that. You may be knocked down, but if you'll get up just one more time, then you are knocked down, you will see the sun rise and you'll see the day get a whole lot better. Can somebody say amen? Amen. God's going to do something in your life. He'll do something for you. You just got to trust him. Bow your heads with me just for a moment. All across this room, there are people that have dreams. Maybe you don't even know what it is yet, but God does. For some of you, he's trying to deposit a dream in your life. 
For others, he's trying to resurrect a dream. And we're coming up on Easter where the power of resurrection is real. And he's wanting to resurrect a dream in your life that maybe you felt like was completely abandoned or completely, you've been completely disqualified because of choices that you've made. And God's saying, I want you to dream again. Dream again. Dream again. There's a dream inside of you that he wants you to possess because it's the key to your destiny. Will you begin to dream again? So I'm not sure. What if I fall again? Then you get up one more time. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Life Church, knowing that you have placed a unique dream in each of their lives. And we know that for that dream to become a reality, we have to be in right relationship with you. We've got to be connected to you. So I pray that not one person will walk out of this room today without making you the Lord of their life without making sure that the dream can live because the dream giver, the life giver is alive inside of each one of us. I pray that you would heal broken hearts. You would restore the dreams that have been broken and that you would allow each one here today to realize that there's a unique dream inside of them that you desire to fulfill. I speak life into that dream today in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast, Chew on That. The Chew on That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week.